Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. All right. Good morning. Things are off to a good start, huh? Baptisms? I mean, my goodness, that's incredible. So congratulations to Paul and, and Mitchell. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. And we want to recognize we have a couple hundred people joining us online, which is incredible. So they're part of our service here. They're part of our church. And so we, well, we don't see you. You see us, but you know what I'm saying. We see you. You're out there. We're together. So thanks for being with us. What, when you think of your hometown, or maybe, maybe not where you were born, where you grew up, kind of what's, what you consider your hometown, what is your hometown known for? You know, a lot of towns kind of have their own ethos and maybe a, a slogan or whatever. My hometown uh, is known as the shuttlecock of the con- Confederacy. A shuttlecock is like the badminton thing that goes back and forth. It's a weird term. And it's because of this reason. 70 times during the Civil War, Winchester, Virginia, my hometown, changed hands. 70 times, shuttlecock, back and forth. Uh, Three of the major battles of the Civil War were fought within the city limits of my hometown. So obviously growing up there, you have Civil War enthusiasts and people coming from all over. And probably not surprisingly, one of the top hobbies growing up in that area were Civil War reenactments. Do you know about this thing? I, I mean, I just thought it was like everybody did this because, you know, then I come out to the West Coast here, nobody like, what? What is that? And if you're unfamiliar, you can Google it and find a lot of information. But it's basically people take this really, really seriously. It's estimated there's 50,000 Civil War reenactors around the world, nine countries, and they spend a ton of time and money making uniforms and they gather in places and they literally reenact battles. And I'm like, why? And no offense to anybody that does it. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but like, why? Why do we want to like lean into what was one of the most horrific moments in our nation's history? 620,000 people died in the Civil War. That's like twice what died in World War II. Why? And I think part of it is we have as, 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 as humans, as a society, we have this perverse attraction to division. Like we don't want to be honest about it, but we do. It's there. We just kind of like it to get into our tribes and to have conflict and angst. I, uh, I'm not on social media much, but I, I was on Twitter or something the other day. I saw this, uh, this slide come up that, that staggered me, and it will come up on the screen. The 52% of Trump voters and 41% of Biden voters, so n- no one, you know, everybody, uh, today would choose to secede from the union. What? I'm like, that's, that's crazy talk. What? what? It's, it, I, my snarky comment is like, we've got a lot of people that want to be Civil War reenactors. Part of this is social media. Some of you don't do social media. I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma. Has anybody seen that documentary on Netflix? Like four of us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you should watch it. Seriously, that's like your homework assignment. It, it's staggering and scary, even if you're not on social media. And here's kind of, I'll sum it all up. It's, a long, it's interviewing a bunch of people who created social media and are in charge and stuff like that. So they're saying they know that social media stokes division. They know it stokes anger, and they do it purposely for profit. They know that we get riled up, and their deal, it's a business, right? They're trying to get clicks. They're trying to keep you engaged. So they fill our news feed with things that reinforce our way of seeing the world, our tribe. 
And a lot of it's fake news because they know fake news, they know these algorithms travel six times faster than real news. We're all getting played for profit. And it stokes our division and we get angry. I mean, that's the, that's the one thing that we can agree on as Americans that we're divided. More people than ever in my lifetime and many of your lifetimes agree that this is the most divided our nation's ever been. 27% of people since the 2016 election have cut off a relationship with a family member. I mean, come on. Well, at least the church isn't divided. Whew. If you don't know me well, I do a lot of sarcasm. That's sarcasm. I, uh, I did a little, little research on, on denominations, and I don't know if you, you know this, this is interesting, that the, uh, the first church split didn't happen until 1054. Like, it's like, a, you know, it's a long, long time. And ever since then, holy moly. Uh, the, the World Christian Encyclopedia says there are 33,000 distinct denominations in the world. 33, what? There are 33 different types of Baptist. Like you may know Baptists and think that they're just all one tribe. There are American Baptists, Conservative Baptists, General Baptists, Southern Baptists. There's Converging Baptists, Free Will Baptists, and Cooperative Baptists. They're like really nice Baptists, I guess. <laughs> There's Primitive Baptists, Old Line Primitive Baptists, Progressive Primitive Baptists, and African American. What? What is this? We have become an us versus them church that lives in an us versus them world. This tribalism that's just stoked in our hearts. Is there any hope? Yes, I think there is. And that's what I'm gonna talk about today. We were, uh, I think, I can't remember, third or fourth week in our present series called The Good Life. And it's hinged and attached to the previous series, which was three weeks called The Lost Gospel. And we've been arguing that, that much of the American church follows a shrunken gospel. And we've shrunk it down to the gospel is only that Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die. Now, that's an aspect of the gospel, but it is shrunken. And here's the deal with this topic today. That gospel, that shrunken gospel will not hold us together in a world coming apart because it's all about you. It doesn't affect your relationship with other people in the world. So it won't, it's not, it won't hold us. It's not cohesive. But here's the good news. The gospel's way much bigger and more beautiful than that. And that's what we spent three weeks. If you missed that series, go back. It is foundational to how we tick around here, to what we believe. King Jesus has come. The kingdom's invading this world. And we're not only made right with God through the cross, but with one another and the world. And we're restored to our original calling to be icons, to reflect God, to be part, brought into and participate in kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. The gospel is not just wait till you die so you can go to heaven. The gospel is getting heaven into us now. And so we decided, well, well, if that's true, and I think it is, let's look at how that bigger, fuller gospel interacts with different topics. So we looked at vocation. Last week, we looked at money. That was uncomfortable for everybody, but that's important. This week, I was like, hey, I wonder if we mix this full gospel together with division, what do we get? And we're going to find out today. You also tell me after the service how, how that goes. It, it could be a train wreck, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I uh, am going to invite my sister Portia up in just a second to read our scripture. And if, if you have your phones, or you, please bring your Bibles if you want to. I think I like that when we have our Bibles in front of us. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17 is our passage. But let me pray for us. If we ever need, needed prayer, we need prayer today. Uh, God, we, just, we acknowledge that we have uh, divisive hearts. I, I, <laughs> I think back to that, civil, that, that social dilemma documentary. There's, there, there's the one guy, he, 
he leaned forward when they said, you know, where is this all going to go? And he said, he said, civil war. And like, that's frightening to see those things in some aspects, God. And to see it come into the church is even more frightening and discouraging. It doesn't have to be that way. This is not the way it's supposed to be, God. I believe that deeply in my bones. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be active in this room through me, through worship, through the people in here, that we would focus and pay attention to what you want to say to us today. May you reshape us and reform us into people who are coming together in a world that's coming apart, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Portia, come on up. The reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say to me that they were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to the Lord. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I think Portia should read audible books. Just like, I'd, I don't know what it is, I'd listen to it and just like, well done, Portia. So let's get some context uh, for what's going on in this passage. We don't want to rip anything out. The Bible wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. So what's going on in this original passage? There's some stuff going on that we need to figure it out. Uh, well, first, Corinth was uh, one of the prominent cities in the first century. It had, by this time of Paul's writing, it had eclipsed Athens in prominence. It was very wealthy, and it was very, very diverse. One scholar said, a historian said that, that Corinth in the first century was like the combination of New York City, L.A., and Las Vegas combined. So... The Spirit of God told Paul to settle in and stay, stay in Corinth, and Paul did his tent-making thing to support himself, and then Paul did what Paul does. Paul started planting churches, and this is almost always the case, that looked exactly like the city, very diverse. And then Paul moves on to Ephesus. So the context is, and this is coming out in what Portia read, so you can have the text in front of you and see and kind of do your Sherlock Holmes thing and figure it out. We can kind of figure out what's going on. Paul hears from Chloe... That, that there's rumblings in the church, there's division in the church. So Paul's like, oh no, that's a church killer. You know, I gotta, I gotta address that. So Paul is writing about these divisions he has heard in, in the church. Uh, also for context, this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, even though it says 1 Corinthians in your Bible. That's really confusing. We don't have the first letter. 
be really cool to find it. I would love somebody to find that. But we don't have it. So Paul is also not only hearing what Chloe is telling what's going on, but he's also interacting with a letter he sent them previously. So all that's just contextual. So we're trying to piece together what's going on. And we can piece together that there are four uh, tribes, if you will, in the Corinthian church. There are four camps if you will, in the Corinthian church. And he names them. So if you're looking at the text, you can follow along. So the first one would be the Paul camp. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? Don't follow me. Like, that's ridiculous. And this makes sense. Like, if you grew up in a church and and, uh, you've been there for a long time, there's like the founders still there. We're like, we're with Jeff or Stu or Sally, whatever, whoever the founder was, you're with them. That makes sense. But then comes in Apollos. And we know Apollos, he, he was very eloquent. Uh, he's kind of like the modern iteration of like the skinny jeans pastor who goes viral and like really eloquent and good looking. And that's Apollos. And Apollos and Paul got along well. We see that in other scriptures. They're, they're not at each other. Apollos is not trying to stoke division. But as happens, some of the people, some of the newer people, if you will, in the church, are like, I'm with Apollos, he's my guide, no more Paul. And then you have the Cephas camp, which that's just another word for Peter. And that, we don't know if, if Peter came through Corinth. We can guess he probably did at some point. But Peter's like the dude in the church. He's like Jesus' best buddy. He's like head of the disciples. And you can understand how this came out. They're like, no, like we want to go really old school. Beyond Paul, we're going back to the original. Only Peter. We're going to follow it. And we know Peter and Paul had conflict. And then the last camp is the one we don't know much about, but it's not a camp Paul's telling the people to follow. It's called the Christ camp, and that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. And we know there was tons of heresy in the early church about Jesus. He wasn't fully human. He wasn't fully God, on and on and on. It's likely that there's some heresy going on, and they're calling themselves the Jesus camp. So picture this church. I mean, it's not a very big church. And there's, they've divided into these four camps, and Paul's like, you guys have got to be kidding me with this. So Paul does uh, a Jewish thing. This is a Jewish way of teaching. Jesus did it a lot. And I frankly think we need to bring it back. And that's asking questions. Not trying to debate people. Just ask questions. So Paul throws out three rhetorical questions, meaning the answer is self-evident. <laughs> and Paul's like, all right, think this through with me. Um, did, did I die for you? You know, uh, was Jesus divided? And then the last one goes to what we're talking about today. Were you baptized in my name? Now imagine, you know, a lot of you guys know Mike. So Mike just baptized, you know, Mitchell and Paul. Imagine if Mike's whispering in their ears, they're going down, in the name of Mike, I baptize you. (laughs) It's like the church of Mike. I mean, I love Mike, but I'd have to insert myself leadership-wise and be like, bro, I know it's your birthday, but mm mm-mm. You know, no church of Mike here. That's not good. It's, uh, Paul's being facetious, right? That's not actually going on. But then it's, uh, I love the humanness of this letter because Paul's in real time trying to remember who he baptized. He's like, I didn't baptize many of you guys. I baptized this guy, this guy. Oh, yeah, this guy too. But you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Mitchell and Paul aren't following me. They're not following Mike, God forbid, or any of us here. Following Jesus. So Paul's just with some simple questions trying to redirect them back to a mindset of unity. In 1954, there's a famous uh, uh, psychological experiment called the Robber's Cave Experiment. 
I, I, I'll mispronounce the guy's name, but he's a famous psychologist. So it was held at Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma, and there was 22 boys handpicked as best they could tell. They were normal and healthy kids, no, no trauma, none of that kind of stuff. And so there was 22 of them, and they split them into two groups, uh, and, and they separated them. They didn't know the other groups were there. And they had adults involved to make sure there was no mayhem and everybody was safe. But they let them kind of lead themselves, 12, 11 and 12-year-old boys. So picture this, right? And so they, they did what, I think, what they proved in the experiment anybody does. And there was a hierarchy, and there was leadership developed. There was like a certain culture. They named, one group named themselves the Eagles. The other group was the Rattlers. And they just found their own way of doing life. And then week two, they let the other group know about one another. And they made them start to share scarce resources, like a softball field or a, a cafeteria. And what do you think happened? <laughs> Didn't go well, right? It was the us versus them thing right away. It so quickly escalated, it was astounding. They got into a massive brawl, fistfights, injuries. These 11 and 12 year old boys who had never met each other until like two days before brought baseball bats and socks filled with rocks. The adults had to step in and shut it down because they said, we thought someone literally was gonna get killed. And this famous experiment showed how, how this, this thing in us, that I, said, I said earlier, this, this perverse thing in us that wants to go tribal that wants to divide, that wants to make people that are different than us and see the world differently, the other. And we become experts of that, not only in the world, but in the church. Church, we're not meant to divide. We're meant to come together in a world that's coming apart. That, as followers of Jesus, is what we're called to do. And here's the thing you need to grapple with if you're serious about following Jesus, is that this is not optional. If you're looking to stoke division and you want to be part of a tribe and you want to other people and us versus them, the way of Jesus is not for you. And I don't normally just read scripture back to back and back, but I'm going to do that a little bit here in, in just a second to show you that, that it's not an option. But let's first go to 1 Corinthians 1.10. This is a really key verse because Paul is going to lay the foundation in scripture of what he's calling them to do in the Corinthian church. He's like, no factions, no tribes, no us versus them. We are coming together in unity. 1 Corinthians 1.10, in the Greek, Paul is using the same Greek word. Twice it's, it's uh, translated the same in this one verse. He's clearly emphasizing something. He says, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all be in agreement, there's the first usage, and that there be no divisions among you, and you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Paul is calling them to unity. This is such a, a really, really beautiful concept. And here, here's a caveat, because this is where our minds go. Paul is not calling them to uniformity. He is not calling them to unanimity. He's calling them to unity. He's calling us to unity. The world, the, the, the progressive extreme, the conservative extreme, any extreme, they're looking for uniformity and unanimity. They want everybody to look the same, act the same. They want to flatten everything out so everything's the same. That's not the way of Jesus. And that's not beautiful. The beauty of the word unity is coming together in our diversity as the Imago Dei, in our differences as the Imago Dei, and being woven together as one. That's incredible. We show up who we are and we're woven together. That's the biblical term. It literally is the same word used in Mark 1 for knitting of a fishing net. 
the fishing net's broken, we're knitting it back together. Or it's also used in scripture, the same word, for what you heard earlier and what you participated in already. You've already done unity today, and that's harmonizing. We don't get people up here that have the same octave voices. <laughs> if you know anything about music, that would not go well. We bring all of our voices collected together and we harmonize. That is the, the, the vision of unity. Another great illustration of this word is quilting. Now, I'm no quilting expert. I don't think I have to tell you that. It's self-evident. But if you know the idea of quilting, you bring different, different squares. Is that what you call them? I don't even know what you call them. And you bring them together in one quilt. You put them all together. Now, the word division that Paul uses here is the word schemata, which is schism. And that's simply the idea of coming into that beautiful quilt, grabbing with two hands, and ripping it asunder. And that's what we see happening everywhere in the world and breaking my heart uh, also in the church. Uh, but Paul is one step ahead of us. Paul, Paul says, what can possibly bring us together in a world that's coming apart? And he says, the cross, like Jesus. I know it's like Sunday school answer. But that's the answer. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is what helps us come together in a world that's coming apart. Later, Paul writes this, For I determined to, know, to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The shrunken gospel that Jesus just died for me so I can go to heaven when I die will not hold us together. The bigger gospel, that King Jesus has come and on the cross not only made me right with God, but right with one another and right with the world and restored to our icon state so we can bring in in partnership with God, the kingdom of God. That will bring unity, my friends. Like I said earlier, this is not an optional thing. If you're like, well, this is, that is a good message. I'm not sure how I feel about that whole unity thing. Well, to be frank, then you don't, you're not sure how you feel about the way of Jesus. And I could go, I promise you, you don't want this because it'd be a boring message. I could go on and on and on and on with verses. I'm just going to give you a few. So this is what, listen to what Paul says, the church at Ephesus. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A few verses later. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be, may be built up until we all reach what? Unity is not just a thing. Unity is the goal. It's where we're working towards in maturity. It is a sign of maturity. Jesus' last prayers on earth, one of his last prayers, John 17, he said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you're in me and I am in you. What does the Bible say about division? The schemata, the tearing apart of that beautiful quilt. Oh, brace yourself. We go to the wisdom literature. This is what, this is what it says. There are six things Yahweh hates, and seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Yahweh hates that. It's the antithesis of who God is and who the people of God are called to be. 
Titus 3, 9 and 11. Titus is a young pastor. These are pastoral letters. Paul's writing to Titus to tell him in a chaotic first century Roman world, Titus, this is how you lead your church. We would listen well to this. Paul says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels. Get off social media, Titus. That's what he's telling him. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. For you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. Why is the Bible so strong on unity and so against division? I'm utterly convinced, and I think we're seeing this play out in our world right now, that it's the number one tactic of the evil one. That's another sermon, but if you don't believe in the existence of evil, uh, you're already in harm's way. Evil is out there, and it is alive and well. I don't think I have to tell you that. And it's coming for the church, and it's coming for our world as it always has. And the number one play in the playbook of the one, because we never seem to figure it out, is to divide and conquer. And when you see division online, you see division interpersonally, you see division in a church or school or family, that, is, that smells like the evil one. Because that's the main tactic. And that's why the Bible is so ruthlessly committed to unity. All right, church, so if I'm at all convincing you and, 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 and piquing your interest in this topic, how? I don't want to just get up here and rant and read scripture and say, just be unified. Good luck. Go get them. Like, how do we do this? This is hard. If it wasn't hard, we would have it all figured out and we'd be doing well. So here's, some, here's a couple practical things that I think come from the text that I've been pondering and praying over. And man, I don't live them out well myself, but I'm trying to. Uh, number one, how do we be, be a church that's coming together in a world that's coming apart? Um, we must realize that we know in part. We know in part. That's all of us in this room. Paul says in his famous love chapter uh, later in 1 Corinthians, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. This dude wrote half the Bible. Jesus appeared to him and taught him. And he's like, after all these years of planting churches and following Jesus and being filled with the Spirit, it's like seeing, it's like when your, your mirror's foggy in the morning after a hot shower. You can't, who's that? You can't quite see. Paul's like, I know in part. If that's true for Paul, that's absolutely true for me. And that's absolutely true for all of us. And my goodness, that creates a better climate for coming together if we approach any issue in which we have differences with one another, not with self-righteousness, that we have the corner on the truth, but simply, I know in part. I'm going to start there. It creates this humility of spirit that's beautiful and willing to learn and willing to listen. Like, think about this. The major things you believe theologically, politically, sociologically, we all have beliefs, and that's we should, and that's okay to feel deeply about them. But I bet you've changed some of those over the years. And if there's a person in this room that's like, nope, from the womb I believe the same thing. You know, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know? You have blind spots, to be honest. And blind spots, we don't see them. That's the problem with them. <laughs> all of us change our mind on things. Or else the assumption would be you were born into a, a, a place and a family and with a mindset that's absolutely perfect, that you're just like God, which is ludicrous. 
So we know in part, that's the beginning of coming together in a world coming by. So I sense hesitancy that some of you think you fully know still, so I'm gonna make us all say this together. On the count of three, I want us to loudly and triumphantly and freeingly say, I know in part. Ready? One, two, three. I know in part. Man, the next time this week probably that you have conflict with one another, start, say that to yourself. I know in part. And that creates a humility of spirit. What did Jesus say again and again and again in the Gospels? Do you have ears to hear? Are we going to be learners and listeners as we begin to come together as a church? All right, second thing, keep the main thing the main thing. Man, followers of Jesus have mastered the art of majoring in the minors. We find the most ludicrous little theological things and little things culturally to fight over and divide over. And I'm just going to be blunt. It's driving me nuts. 25 years I've been a pastor, and, and I know a lot of pastors, I know a lot of pastors all over the world, and I could, I could regale you with tale after tale after tale after tale of churches that come apart over the silliest things, like times of service, or when you're going to do communion, or if you're going to do it every week, or literally the type of chairs in the sanctuary, or the color of paint in the nursery. You've got to be kidding me. And I'm going to really press in and be vulnerable, so get ready for this. And now, you know, we look minor. We can kind of be like, there's silly people dividing over those things. We're dividing. Let's stand back for a second. Over the last, we've all been a part of this. Over the last year, I've seen churches dividing and people leaving church over mask or over vaccination status or over who voted for who or how you feel about critical race theory, and I'm convinced no one on planet Earth knows what critical race theory is. <laughs> even the experts, right? They all disagreed, yet we're gonna divide over it, even though we don't know what we're talking about. It's, it's of the evil one. I am deeply convinced of that. And we are called to come together in a world that's coming apart. It's not optional. And I'm not saying that you, don't, you can't care deeply about those things. We should all be learning. All those things are important things to have ideas on, but they should not be reasons that we come apart. We're majoring in the minors. And this is going to be in a church that we're going to keep the main thing the main thing here. And I may be down to me and like 10 of you guys on a Sunday, but we're going to do that because it's not for the faint of heart because you get it from both sides. But I'm convinced that what scripture says. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our main thing here. Our mission is to follow Jesus and share his love. On the cross, Jesus made us right with God and makes us right with one another and brings kingdom come to our world that's breaking apart. It's Jesus. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. I mean, we got to stop being a church where if we don't get our way or somebody doesn't agree with us on a subject, we take our ball and go home. I mean, that's what small children do. Right? We're meant to come together around the main thing because so much is at stake right now. And when the world that we're supposed to be icons and evidence what it looks like, when they see unity, y'all, I'm telling you, you brought a y'all out of me at Southern, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what is, I got to check that out, because that looks like Jesus. 
I love this quote. I don't know, no one really knows who, who wrote it or came up with it, but I love this kind of idea. And this, this is how I tick. This is how our church ticks. In essentials, and for me, that's Jesus in this full gospel. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, the things along the edges that we all disagree with, and it's beautiful and fine. Liberty, and in all things, love. I think that's such a great guide for how we need to come together in a world that's coming apart. All right, last thing. Practically, how do we come together in a world that's coming apart? Realize that what unites us is greater than what divides us. Realize that what unites us is greater than what divides us. So this will date some of you, but you can read in history books, students, uh, about this. It's a pretty more remarkable story. In 1952, uh, the presidential campaign was Adlai Stevenson against Dwight Eisenhower. And it was very contested presidential election. I don't think they liked each other much. It was pencil-thin margins. At the end of the day, Adlai Stevenson's barely lost to Dwight Eisenhower, as you know if you know your presidents. Uh, Adlai Stevenson's 1952 concession speech has been called the granddaddy of all concession speeches. And he's been called the most beautiful loser. And that's not a critique. It's, it's a compliment. And here's what he said. I mean, I, I can't. Politicians who just pour their lives and money into this. And can you imagine giving a concession speech? It's, it's horrible. It's really difficult. Here's what he said. He says, that which unites us as American citizens is far greater than that which divides us as political parties. I urge you to you all to give to General Eisenhower the support he will need to carry out the great task that lies before him. I pledge him mine. We vote as many, but we pray as one. That, that's what we need right there. First uh, Corinthians 1, 9. Paul says, God is faithful who has called you, that's all of us, that's a collective you, that's a plural word in the Greek, y'all, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word fellowship is koinonia. And the root uh, in the Greek of koinonia is the word common. And that's the root of our word community in Old English, common. We are common people. We come together as one because we we're held together by the most essential things being common. My friend Nijay Gupta, he's a New Testament scholar, and his translation of this verse, he translates koinonia as sharedness, even though I told him that's not a word. But I like it. Sharedness. We have sharedness despite our differences, which are beautiful. But we have sharedness. Paul's reminding the Corinthian church that. I think one of the most beautiful images of this sharedness, this koinonia, that, that I come back to again and again and again. One, because it's all throughout the scriptures, and that's the idea of a table of people sitting around a table eating. Uh, you, you look in the Old Testament, you look in Jesus' stories, you look in the New Testament epistles, table, 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 table. Those people are always eating, always eating, always around the table. And I thought, some illustrations don't correlate to modern life. That one does. We still gather around tables as different, distinct people that sometimes are angry at each other and don't like each other, you know, i.e. Thanksgiving dinner, you know, those kind of things. And we have one meal that we share together. I think there's, there's profound spiritual truth there. So let's imagine, let's do a thought exercise for a second, because I think we can piece this together without being manipulative of the text. I think we can guess kind of Sherlock Holmes style of like who was at the table in the Corinthian church, because they ate together in the first century, we know that. That was a regular rhythm of their gatherings. They ate together. So we know, because we know some specific names that Portia read that were in the text, who those people were. So when we begin to piece together, we, we can be confident that this type of gathering was happening in the Corinthian church. One, um, we, had, we had a Pharisee. A Pharisee was there. That's one of the people named. Uh, or maybe a former Pharisee. 
Uh, so strict religious, clean, unclean. That's where this person's coming from. Next to the Pharisee is sitting uh, a male or a female uh, prostitute from the temple. Corinth was known for their, their temple prostitutes. And we know many of them begin to come to Jesus and follow the way of Jesus and be healed and be made whole. Imagine that dinner conversation. You have women businessmen. Corinth was known for, for women in leadership, and the Corinth church was known for that. So you, you, have, you have women who are leading some of these churches, and they're sitting there. They, they, women didn't usually sit at those. It was just a, a man deal. And then we, have, we know from one of the people in the name, we have a Roman centurion at the table. You know what a Jesus' disciples was a Jewish hitman? Imagine his conversation with Matthew who worked for the Romans. I mean, what was Jesus doing? I mean, imagine this. And then you have slaves. We know they were heavily populated in the early church. Slaves sitting at the table across from their slave owner. I mean, are you guys getting this? Are you getting this? And so this is some of my frustration that I feel when I'm sitting down with people and they're like, I, I just, I got to leave. I can't do the mass thing. I'm just like, What? Or like, I, I just disagree on this minor theological, I'm out of here. We have missed it. Now, the Corinthians had a lot of issues. They had a lot of problems they were navigating. But they figured out this thing, didn't they? And they were able to come together in their diversity and gather around and be the church. Can we live church, our church, into the imagination of this moment? Can we embody this sort of thing that I, I promise you if we're able to, and I think we're endeavoring to do that, that the world will be like, what's up with that? That is so unusual. It speaks of someone greater than you. Yep. Back to the robber's cave experiment. An interesting finding that they found is like these 11, 12-year-old boys who were literally about to clock each over the head with bats and injure one another, maybe even kill each other. You know what they did to bring them together? I bet you can guess. They threw a big meal, and they were chummy like that. <laughs> they got them around a table with plates filled with food. I, I, one of my favorite sports stories, and I have, a, I have a lot of them, as you guys that know me, and I'll only tell one today as we, as we uh, conclude, is uh, the story of, of Miracle on Ice. Do you guys know that story? The U.S. Olympic hockey team. I was, uh, it was 1980, so I was, I was nine and I remember playing in the backyard. I was playing football or something. I remember my dad coming out and saying, son, you need to get in here and watch this. And this wasn't cable. We didn't have the internet. This is like you know, the fuzzy thing. And uh, I'm so glad my, my dad did that because that's one of the greatest moments in sports history. So uh, set a little context. Uh, the US men's Olympic team was made up of a bunch of college kids that went to a bunch of different colleges that spent the, the regular season battling each other. They weren't teammates. The Russians had won four straight gold medals uh, they had just annihilated the opponents, and they had played this kind of ramshackle college, group of college students a couple of weeks ago and beat them 11 to 1, which in, ho in hockey, that's like 100 nothing in football. I mean, that's, it's crazy. So, so picture this scene. So Herb Brooks, um, and a small little personal antidote to this um, is the church I was at in Madison for 18 years. Mark Johnson, who's the leading goal scorer for the U.S. Olympic team that year, went to our church, and his kids were in my youth ministry. I remember one night, uh, we had Life Group at his house for his kids, and I asked him if he had the gold medal from 1980. He's like, oh yeah, I think it's in a drawer somewhere. I'm like, what? And so he gets it out, and I wore it all around that night. I thought about making a run for it at some point, but I, I didn't. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's a personal story, too. But anyway, Herb Brooks, and this is in the movie Miracle, if you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. Herb Brooks is like, how am I going to do this? 
how am I going to bring this diverse group that all throughout their lives they've been against each other? You're at Cornell. You're at University of, you know. And uh, so he devised this thing, and he didn't share it with them. So he was crushing them with wind drills, and like, you know, they're, they're puking and sweating. And, you know, that's how the music movies depict him. And during that, as they're running and working out, he would stop them, and he'd call on a player. He said, announce yourself. And so, like, my friend Mark Johnson would be like, Mark Johnson. He's like, where are you from, Mark? University of Wisconsin-Madison, go Badgers. And yeah, go Badgers. And then they go on, he's like, keep running your wind sprints. Like, they were doing something wrong. And they're like, what is up with this guy? And finally, and the, the movie plays this out beautifully, Michael Ruzioni, he's the captain, he figures it out. And in this scene, Mike's on the ice, I think he had just puked, <laughs> and he's like, you know, introduce yourself. And Mike looks up, he's like, Michael Ruzioni, United States of America. And that's when it changed. That's when it changed. When they realized that they had something greater that held them together. That was the hope for that team that led to a goal. Where will the hope be for the church? I, I, I don't know. But there's hope. There's hope for all of us. And I, I'm looking in your eyes now, and, and I feel it in my body. The division, right? We can't go on like this. And it's the way of Jesus, who's following King Jesus, who's bringing all people together. There is hope for us to embody what that looks like. And that's my deep, deep prayer for our church. As we come to the table, I want you to get your, your little communion uh, cups. And um, I want us to imagine that, that scene in the Corinthian church. This is how all the early Jesus movement churches did it. They would eat, and then they would have this in the middle of their table. And they would end their meal with communion. So if during the meal they had an argument, you bet they did. They all remembered at the end what brought them together as brothers and sisters that what held them together was far greater than what divided them. And they endeavored to keep the main thing the main thing. And we're reliving that, we really are. I greet you all out front. I know many of you well. You're really different people. <laughs> and that's awesome. That's awesome. It's really beautiful. And we're fighting to maintain that, and I think we will. And so today, as we do this, we're reliving and re-embodying the story. And the table is also to be a portal of what to come. We're living into with imagination what's coming. And we're told one day people from every language and people and nation and tribe will be around the table for the wedding feast of the Lamb. What a day. I'd like that right now. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. But we're living into it right now. And we have the privilege of living into it, not for our glory, but for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. Let me pray over the elements. God, thank you for... Uh, your broken body and your spilled blood. I truly believe, God, I, I, some days I'm not optimistic, but I am perpetually hopeful because of who you are, because it's happened before and I'm praying that it happens again. I'm hoping, God, and I would ask your grace on this congregation, this church, that your Holy Spirit would run wild in our hearts and knit us together like a quilt. Knit us together so strongly, God, that nothing can break us apart. There's no schismata. That we're held together and held fast by Jesus. And in our very short lives, we endeavor to come together and link arms and change the world for the sake of the world and for the sake of the gospel and for your glory, God. I ask for that humbly. I long for that. Correct in us what needs to be corrected to make that happen. And give us imagination, holy imagination, to see beyond what's right in front of us, which is rampant division and hate, and to live into what it looks like to be the true body of Christ. 
Uh, we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said.